All right, all right, all right. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Kimberly, bringing you lesser-known true crime stories. Welcome back, my friends. As always, I hope you're doing well. It's officially October, aka the 10th month of spooky season for me. So that means... All of this month's episodes will tie in with October and the vibe of Halloween in some capacity or, you know, like, the vibe. Pumpkins, skeletons, kill, 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 scary movies, people doing fucked up shit in the month of October is really what we're getting at here. Uh, Before I get started, you know I have to give my thank yous and get some what had happened business addressed. So thank you new listeners, sometimes listeners, and diehard listeners. I am always so grateful for your positive encouragement and feedback. I hope that you like the content I bring to you every episode thus far. Oh my goodness, I've got so much stuff planned. It's been a super fun ride thus far though. I'd like to remind you, like I do every episode, to tell your friends, acquaintances, strangers, everyone you encounter to give the podcast a listen. You guys are so amazing with the word of mouth. Thank you. Also, don't forget to do that little thing where you mark what had happened to True Crime Podcast as a favorite wherever you listen to podcasts so you can get notified whenever a new episode drops. Lastly, if you haven't already, be sure to join the What Had Happened Facebook group as well as follow the podcast on Instagram and Twitter where I totally suck at like tweeting and IGing, but I'm going to work on that. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day. As always, the links can be found in the description box with my references. This is going to probably be like a little quick bite of what had happened for you guys. Uh, So let's get into it. Let's do it. Today I'm going to take you way back because our last episode I told you about killer couple couple Alvin and Judith Neely whose crime sprees included the abduction, rape, and murder of two young women in 1980. So we're going to go back way farther. Many of us have heard of the Axeman of New Orleans, right? Like if I don't hear jazz music playing out of the windows of the of all of the homes in the French Quarter or wherever it was in New Orleans, I will be murdering you. And he totally did that. Well, guess what? I'm not talking about that axe man. Mm-mm. I'm talking about a little known axe man. Have you heard about the axe man of Tacoma, Jake Bird? Let's get into it. What had happened? I did some serious sleuthing on this particular story for you all, so I hope you find it, like, informative. Jake Bird was born December 14, 1901, in rural Louisiana to Charles and Deli Bird. Now, there's some conflict as to whether or not they're his birth parents or his adoptive parents, but it's 1901, and he is a person of color. He is an African-American man. So, I don't know what was going on with the records down in Louisiana at that time but I do know that Charles and Daly are his mom and dad in some capacity be it by birth adoption situationship what have you they're the people who raised him 
Jake was the middle son of three, Lem the oldest born in 1884 and Andrew the youngest in 1914. Life was extremely difficult for Jake. While his place of birth isn't given specifically, one um, can only imagine what trials and tribulations he had to endure as a poor African-American in the turn of the century Jim Crow South. At the age, oh gosh, and not to mention whatever fucked up shit was actually going on potentially in-house, okay? So I have to preface that as well, you know? Like, you never know, as we see with these true crimes. Sometimes the real true crimes begin in the home. It's what fosters the evil, what breeds the evil, what conceives the evil, you know, that ends up playing out in front of us. So... At the age of 19, Jake did what many did in the era. Jake started hopping trains and living the transient life of a hobo, crossing the country and picking up odd jobs wherever he could. A quick history of freight hopping per Wikipedia is this. Freight hopping or train hopping is the act of surreptitiously boarding and riding a freight railroad car which is usually illegal as fuck they didn't have that part in the united states this became a common means of transportation following the american civil war as the railroads roads began pushing westward especially among migrant workers who became known as hobos it continued to be widely used by those unable to afford other transportation, especially during the times of widespread economic di- uh, dislocation, such as the Great Depression. For a variety of reasons, the practice is less common today, although a community of freight train riders still exists. And when I think of like this time that we're talking about, I automatically go to John Steinbeck, Grapes of Wrath, George and Lenny. Mm-hmm. See, she's learned, y'all. I'm not just a pretty face with a sexy voice. <laughs> One job that Jake was able to get often over the years was as a Gandhi dancer, which for those of us who aren't railroad enthusiasts... It is a slang term for the railroad workers who laid and maintained the tracks until machines took over the job later in the 20th century. It was back-breaking hard labor. Although Jake was clean-cut and not imposing in stature, his strength that he amassed from doing this particular trade of work was... Jake lived the typical hobo lifestyle, hopping from train to train, city to city. Jake would often trade his labor services for a hot meal and a place to sleep overnight, repeating the process time and time again for almost 30 years. Jake had also been in and out of trouble whilst living the hobo life with a rap sheet that included burglaries, theft, assault, and attempted murder. The 1930s census placed Jake in the Iowa State Penitentiary and Penitentiary Hospital, and then in 1940 in Fort Madison, Iowa. Jake was a phantom breezing through unnoticed until he reached Tacoma, Washington, also known as the City of Destiny. 
Bertha Klute and her husband Edward were born in Russia. The Klutes migrated to America after their first child, Arthur, was born in Canada. They settled in Tacoma, Washington, where they would have four more children. Edward earning a living as a carpenter, and I'm going to make an assumption that Bertha was a homemaker because I can't find anything on her employment in Washington. In 1940, Edward died, leaving Bertha to raise the children alone. By 1947, Bertha and her youngest daughter, 17-year-old Beverly, were the only ones residing in the Clute home. In the wee hours of October 30th, 1947, Jake stood in front of the home at 1007 South 21st Street. The lights were out and the neighborhood fast asleep. Planning to burglarize the home, Jake went into the shed in the back of the home and grabbed an axe. Jake is said to have stripped down to his birthday suit before entering the home he, quote, presumed was empty. I call bull fucking shit on, off the rip. One doesn't strip down to nothing and grab an axe to enter an unoccupied home. Okay, like, come on. You only do that when you know the probability of running into the homeowners is high and have to fuck some shit up, but don't want to get your clothes soaked in blood, you know, because you got to leave. Um, anywho, Jake entered the home like he'd most likely entered countless other homes across the country. Jake entered the bedroom of Bertha, being startled from her sleep by a lumbering dark figure attempting she like to rob her home like he startled the shit out of her bertha screamed awakening her 17 year old daughter beverly who was asleep in her upstairs bedroom and probably half of the fucking neighborhood to silence her jake bludgeoned bertha repeatedly in the head and exited the bedroom for the kitchen as beverly entered the kitchen to investigate her mother's screams she was met by the blade of the axe wielded by jake cracking her in the head Beverly, too, let out a, se a series of howling screams as Jake silenced her. Concerned neighbors alerted police who arrived to the corner house on South 21st Street at about 2.30 a.m. When police arrived, they witnessed a shirtless black male with his shoes in, his, in hand running out of the home. A chase ensued. While cornered at the chain link fence, Jake produced a pocket knife that he used to slice through one of the two officers' hands and stab the second in the shoulder before being apprehended. The police beat Jake enough that he needed medical attention before being transferred to jail. Initially, Jake denied having killed Bertha and Beverly, but quickly changed his story when it was pointed out that there were brain fragments and blood on his trousers. Jake claimed that his only intention was to rob the Clute home. Jake told police that when he entered the home, Bertha caught him and began to confront him. Jake said that when he tried to leave, she attempted to stop him from fleeing and he panicked and beat her with the axe. Her screams alerted Beverly, whose death was merely incidental. Detectives, however, found evidence that Jake attempted to sexually assault Bertha before bludgeoning her, contradicting his sequence of events. On October 31, 1947, 
Jake Bird was charged in Pierce County Superior Court with the first-degree murder of Bertha Clute. The prosecutor of the case needed to prove premeditation in Bertha's murder in order for Jake to receive the death penalty. Jake pleaded not guilty and was held in the Tacoma City Jail without bail. Just three days before Thanksgiving, the trial of Jake Bird began. On November 24, 1947, inside the Pierce County Superior Court, Judge Edward D. Hodge presided over the case. Jake's attorney, James W. Sheldon, asserted that his client's confession was given while under duress after being beaten by his arresting officers, claiming it was inadmissible. The judge disagreed and admitted Jake's confession into evidence. There were also Jake's bloody and brain matter-covered trousers and bloody fingerprints that were found throughout the home on the murder weapon that were difficult to ignore. The trial lasted for two days. After deliberating for 35 minutes on November 26, 1947, the jury unanimously found Jake guilty of first-degree murder, recommending the death penalty. On January 15, 1948, Judge Hodge affirmed Jake's death and sentenced him to die by hanging at the Washington State Penitentiary. As Jake was being sentenced, Jake was allowed to make a final statement. Jake spoke in the courtroom for 20 minutes, pointing out that his request to be to represent himself had been denied, as that as that his and also that his own counsel, <coughs> excuse me, my goodness, my throat got dry. He also asserted that his own counsel weren't defending him, and in fact, they were against him. Jake then said, quote, I'm putting the Jake Bird hex on all of you who had anything to do with my being punished. Mark my words, you will die before I do. Allegedly, six people connected with the trial did die. Judge Edward D. Hodge of a heart attack within a month of sentencing Jake to death, as did one of the officers who took his first confession. A police officer who took a second confession died, as did the court's chief clerk and one of Jake's prison guards. J.W. Sheldon, one of Jake's lawyers, died on the first anniversary of his sentencing. Holding true to, excuse me, my throat, holding true to the hex that he, you know, put out there, they all died before he was executed. While awaiting his death, Jake won a 60-day reprieve from Governor Morand C. Walgren after promising to give information to clear up 44 unsolved murders across the country he alleged to have committed. Investigators from across the nation flocked to Washington State to interview Jake. Of the 44 murders, 11 were substantiated, and Jake had enough intimate knowledge of the other 33 murders that he was considered a prime suspect in those as well. During Jake's travels, he murdered in Illinois, Kentucky, Nebraska, Oklahoma, Kansas, South Dakota, Ohio, 
Florida, Wisconsin, Michigan, Iowa, and Washington State. Jake's victims were primarily white women with whom he took pleasure in striking fear and intimidation in. He also struck near the railroads. Okay, we're going to get into all of that and the what had happened because the wrap up. In the meantime, while detectives across the country were closing cold cases that baffled them for years, Jake appealed his conviction with the Washington State Supreme Court, but his petition for retrial was denied. The U.S. Court of Appeals and the U.S. Supreme Court also denied his petitions for a new trial. After exhausting all of his petitions, Jake was scheduled for execution on July 15, 1949. So, on July 14, 1947, the U.S. Supreme Court had declined to review Jake's conviction for the third time, and Governor Arthur B. Langley chose not to interfere with the execution. Finally, early Friday morning, July 15, 1949, Jake was taken from his gallows level cell to the noose. At 12.20 a.m., witnessed by 125 spectators, which, I mean, okay, so this was like 1949, so, I mean, I understand that it is a hanging, it's an execution, and I know that we also have lots of spectators that show up for executions at public, well, you know, at prisons now. Uh, you know, you always have the the victims, supporters, and supporters of the killers with their poster board signs and stuff outside, you know, up until the very last moment, and then some. Uh, but there's something that resonates with me when you think of the fact that it's 12.20 in the a.m., bright and early, zero dark 30, there are 125 spectators who are there to watch this man hang in 1949. That was something that used to be done when people were lynched as well, and I'm not trying to compare his hanging because it was a pub it was an execution um that was warranted by the state of Washington vices a lynching perpetrated by hate mongers but that just resonates with me because you know there were always crowds that would gather and spectate at lynchings as well and this is a man of color so for me as a person of color it just it just hits a little bit differently i'm not saying he didn't deserve it but you know it just hits a little differently anywho he was witnessed by 125 spectators the gallows trap door was released and jake bird dropped five feet to his death after 14 minutes his body was taken down and prison physician Dr. Elmer Hill pronounced him dead. He was buried in an unmarked grave in the prison cemetery, identified only as convict number 21520. Jake Bird willed his personal fortune of $6.15 to Murray Taggart, the Walla Walla attorney 
who filed his appeals. To this day, Jake is one of the most underrated serial killers in American history. Many theorize that because Jake was an African-American man, his crimes didn't receive nearly as much coverage as, say, H.H. Holmes or other white serials, but his estimated record of murders put him in the prolific category. So what had happened is this. I don't really want to talk about Louisiana as a state because Louisiana has a very rich history as we all know and um, it's not it's not polite to speak about things that are out of our realm you know voodoo hoodoo all that stuff like that I, I don't want to put bad juju out there but we'll say that he did live we know this he lived in an extremely rural part of the state we will also say that i can also say this without insult to anyone in louisiana you have your metropolitan areas and even then in 1901 you had your metropolitan areas so you had new orleans and baton rouge you had shreveport you had your bustling cities and then you have your rural areas that are inhabited by swamp or whatever okay so it was hard it was 1901 like i don't expect it to have been easy it certainly wasn't like living here in the present day so <clears throat> he lived there whatever happened there was so dastardly or you know cumbersome for him or i don't know shitty you know it very well could have just been like you know what i don't want to be here anymore i would rather be elsewhere so i'm just gonna travel or he could have gotten into some shit in Louisiana, you know, in his youth. And as soon as he could, he started his travels via freight. All of those are possibilities, okay? What we do know is that he was in all of the states that I listed before. So he was in Illinois, Kentucky, Nebraska, Oklahoma, Kansas, South Dakota, Ohio, Florida, Wisconsin, Michigan, Iowa, and Washington State. He had a rap sheet for theft, robbery, burglary, uh, assault. He obviously murdered people, but he was, you know, it would, it would seem as if Whenever he would get off on a stop somewhere, he would make some money. He had gambling debts, from what I read, that he also needed to take care of. Um, so he would do whatever he needed to do. He would rob Peter to pay Paul to do that. He also was a predator, okay? Because you don't go murdering, like, 44 people... I'm assuming that the majority of them or all of them were women. Okay, 11 of them are substantiated and the cases were closed. But you had enough intimate knowledge of the other 33 murders. You cannot tell me that this man was in hobo camps and 
on freight trains across the country with other murderers who confessed everything that they did in detail for these 33 murders. No, 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 my dear. You had a working knowledge because this is what you did. Okay? So he was a predator. He was a monster. Okay? I don't want to sugarcoat that. I don't want... I don't want you listeners to think that because I'm a person of color that I'm going to take his side because he himself was a person of color. Oh, fuck no. He was a horrible piece of shit. Okay? But because the crimes that he committed were not reported, you know, via newspaper or the prints no longer exist, the cases were never, you know documented and put into a digital platform I can't give you all of the different details to at you know to make a plus b equals c I I don't have that today so all I have is my assertions of you know what I believe happened um I believe that this man was a complete monster who whenever he stopped somewhere he committed a crime and he actually spent 30 I believe it was an estimation of approximately 30 of his 40 plus years of life incarcerated so as soon as he left New Orleans, or not New Orleans, Louisiana at 19, he started getting in trouble and he was doing stints. As the census for Iowa in 1930 proved, you know, he had done a nice chunk of time there as well. So there's all of this undocumented time for him as well because he lived that off the grid lifestyle. So, I mean, I really don't have much to say except for this dude came in at the end of October when everybody in the neighborhood was carving jack-o'-lanterns and children were getting fitted for homemade costumes or costumes that they were fortunately able to get from a five and dime store you know or a Woolworths um and basically shook the shit out of the community when he brutally murdered Bertha and Beverly. Uh, Again, I said I I totally agree that he deserved what he got as far as his punishment for the crime that he doled out, considering that hanging was one of the, you know, modes of execution that we used in our, you know, correctional facilities at the time. It's obviously been eradicated, you know, because it is cruel, inhumane, uh, you know. But, yeah, what a fucked up piece of shit. And I also wanted to touch on this because, you know, there really isn't too much about this episode. We also have seen that there's actually quite a little history of transient serial killers who used freight trains and train hopping as their way to facilitate these murders and go untouched like and go uh, these murders go unsolved so there's been countless murders if you think about it 
if you live near a railroad, a rail line, and there have been unsolved murders in your town, perhaps maybe, and this is just a perhaps, perhaps it was a transient killer. Perhaps it was someone who was in and out in the in the night you know they get to learn how these rail lines run even in night in the 1920s 30s 40s or whatever if you've been hopping trains for that long you learn you learn you learn you learn where they go when you can expect them that's what train schedules are for too as well you know uh Wow. So, I hope this helps kick off our spooky season. You guys, I'm Kimberly. I've got a few more episodes planned for this month. Uh, Again, hope you guys enjoy. Don't forget to tell your friends. Tell everybody to listen. Have a happy kickoff. Apple cider. Leaves changing. Pumpkins. All that choo-choo-choo-choo. all the scary movies and stuff yay can't wait you guys i'm super excited it's literally like one of the best times of the year ah again hope you guys enjoyed this quick little episode i'm kimberly thanks for listening have a great one